1: Irish comedian Dara O'Breen has been involved in the comedy world since the late 1990s. His long list of TV shows and stand-up tours include the BBC's Mock the Week, which was on air for 17 years. It was a comedic take on current events in the UK. But Dara is known to talk about a wide range of topics, from science to
2: the Irish experience. There are three states of legality in Irish law. There is all this stuff here, which comes under, that's grand. (laughs) Then it moves into, ah, now, don't push it. <laughs> and finally, he's right, you're taking the piss. And that's where the police sweep in, right?
1: He kicks off the U.S. leg of his So Where Were We tour next month. After the break, he joins us from the U.K. to talk about his comedy, the tour, and his search for his birth mother. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at amgen.com.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com.
1: Dara O'Brien, welcome to 1A.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So You have had to put your touring career on hold because of the pandemic. You were in the midst of, the, it, of a tour when the
2: lockdown happened. What was that like for you? Well, it was actually, weirdly, it was, it was very much the mirror image of the tour I'm going to do in America in a month's time. It was the same four cities. Uh, and we were joking, this is at the start of March in uh, 2020 and we were joking about people absent from the seats and spread out there's more space because we thought people were being overly cautious we weren't aware of the level to which it was going to we'd no idea of the storm that was coming so we were joking about it and it was literally at a point where i'd finished the u.s tour and was in an airport to fly to toronto to start the canadian tour when i got a text that basically said Go home now. Get by whatever means necessary. They're shutting Canada. They're shutting New York. Uh, We did. I think uh, we did the town hall in New York on the on the Thursday or the let's say the Tuesday, and Broadway got shut on the Friday. And that's how close it came to losing that entirely. They, uh, and then obviously the whole thing shut down for a year and a half. So the title, So Where Were We?, was very meant, very much meant to cock a snook at that in a, let's just pick up where we left off. Shall we not mention the last year and a half, two years at all? They, uh, there's no need to ever talk about that again.
1: So as during that time when you weren't able to be in front of live audiences, I, I saw a lot of comedians, you know, trying to do stand-up sets online. Which I would, ex- I would guess, that's a pretty different experience. I mean, how were you using that time?
2: It was well. Well, I've got three children, so that's how I was using that time. I I've got three children, and my wife is a doctor, so it's very much how I was using that time uh-huh. was that she would return home after her work, and I would be at the door going, "What was it like? What was oh, it like out wow. there?" Yeah. It was just, so, it was, so it ended up being so I end up not being at. I just didn't have the energy to do much past the uh, the homeschooling. Uh, but the, we did a bit of it. And then it opened out in unusual ways. There were drive-in gigs mm-hmm. where there would be on a, a kind of a, a property somewhere outside London, a country property where there'd be some land. They would put a stage up and cars would drive into the stage and they would and they would either beep their horns until this became a noise abatement issue, or they would they'd hand their little rattle clacker things, and then they would reach out on a good joke and you'd hear in the distance clack 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 and it was remarkable how quickly you recalibrated your own self-esteem to from the normal sound of laughter and applause to the distant noise of faint clicking was <laughs> enough to go there we go i'm funny again so but they tried to do that for a while uh, and then we did gigs as well, where people were in little boxes, like fairy forts. Mm. They were they were they were boxed off in little areas, um, separate from each other. And then slowly, and then it would shut down again, and it would start again. And we tried to do the online version. The online things were awful. There was a, a, a nightmare story went around about a comedian I know whose name I won't say, who did an online gig that went so badly. Uh, that somebody essentially took the Zoom away from him by going, oh, "Can okay. I just interrupt you there, Mary? Congratulations on the baby!" And then Mary started telling them all about the baby, and he was left just in one of the small windows. The uh, and because it's a very democratic thing, Zoom it it immediately the camera shifts immediately to whoever's doing the talking. He said it went so badly. At one stage, he was giving them links, he was sending them links on Zoom to other gigs he had done, like so they could at least look up and see him being funny in the past. <laughs> So.
1: I mean, when I think about the craft of comedy and how much it relies on that exchange of energy between you, the comedian, yes. yeah, yeah. and, and the audience, how, had, how did the pandemic and, you know, performing in front of car carfuls of people and the clacking, did it, did it reshape the way you think about or approach the craft
2: at all? Um, it was certainly renewed an enthusiasm for seeing people in the flesh. Uh, I would say the um, it was interesting. It did. I suppose you could say, well, this worked, and why did this work and something else? What certain jokes didn't, uh, but it all came tumbling in. There were many stories about the audience having forgotten how to behave at gigs. Mm. That the audience were standing up and walking around more than they had two years earlier, <laughs> or were like would walk up and have photographs. And be going, no, 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 we don't know. That's well, not what during we do. the set. Uh, <laughs> Don't yeah, we, yeah. Oh wow. And you go, no, no, no. I didn't have that badly, to be honest with you. But it was, I do remember being the first thing that was on in Dublin after it. And that was pure fluke that my dates were maintained where other dates had stopped. And then suddenly they announced, okay, for Monday we can go. And I was on on the Thursday, let's say. And there was a bit where I stand behind the curtain and I go, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome on stage. And I do know my own announcement so I can change it every night. and I, And you could hear the energy in the room, just this, oh my God, and when I walked out, there was like a thunderclap of, this is actually happening. Not like, I won't, I'm not going to flatter myself. In the same way that I remember getting a big cheer once for being the person who did the countdown from 10 to 1 on New Year's Eve. (laughs) I'm not the thing they were cheering. (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is very like that. It was just that huge whoosh of like, oh, thank heavens, this is actually happening again. This can, this can resume. So that was, you know, but to being the recipient of that was, but it's a much like, I remember... I think like the second meal out I had, I remember pointing to my wife and going, Oh, that's not very nice. That, that's not that's not, and then going, Oh my god, how quickly how quickly do you return to normal <laughs> consumer behaviour? Well, well, I don't I know those peas are those peas aren't done that very well. And, and and very quickly the audience has returned to just this is normal. This is what it is.
1: Yeah. Well, President Joe Biden described his trip to Ireland in April this year as returning home. And a lot of our listeners described feeling a kinship with
0: Ireland. Hi, this is Andrew from the Hyattsville, Maryland area. And I would love to answer the question as to why Ireland and the United States enjoy such a close relationship. We both are republics who threw off the shackles of a larger empire through force of arms. It also helps that we throw off the shackles of the same empire through force of arms. So it's easy to see why there would be some common kinship there. Happy to have Dara O'Brien on the air. Thanks, WAMU. And WAMU is
1: the station that produces 1A for NPR. What's your take on the way U.S.
2: audiences relate to the Irish experience? it's very interesting because in some ways it's we find it very heartening but we also find it I wouldn't say bewildering necessarily but because some of the, the traits that y- you embrace about Irishness are, are very much a dipped in aspect, if you know what I mean. They're, they're from a particular era of Irishness. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and so sometimes it is people return and go and say, oh, this is very different now. And you're going, well, yes, we didn't carry on because um, that wasn't working, the economic model of, of, of masturbation and having to send people off. So we became quite IT-based and very kind of modern and successful mm-hmm. in the last while. And I think there is kind of a weird sense of the, the character traits that people hold as being very dearly Irish are like, we go, oh, I don't, we don't, we actually, we don't do, we, I mean, we do, we do drink, we talk a lot. Um, we're kind of, you know, kind of uh, you know, rambunctious people in our own ways. But like a, a very casual, I know Conan O'Brien, for example, on his podcast will casually allude to, oh, the Irish have terrible mental health problems. And you're there going, we really don't. We really do well, I mean, all. So the, Conan
1: O'Brien, notwithstanding, do you think it's, it's a sort of... Um, romanticised vision of Ireland as being a place maybe a little trapped in time?
2: Possibly. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, There may be that, which is very sweet and look, we're, by the way, I'm not going to give us too many pats on the back. We are very happy to sell that image mm-hmm. and we're very happy to market on behalf of it and then to take your dollars when you arrive <laughs> over. Like, I mean, it's very happy to create an industry around that. Like, yeah. um, but I also think one thing I find quite interesting is like it's because it's based on an immigrant experience, um, it's almost like, well, the Irish do this... Whereas the Italians did that, and that's quite, and there's an in, a contrast between them because they, you know, they were existing cheek by jowl in the parts of New York at the time or Chicago where they all arrived over. Whereas obviously in modern Ireland we spend very little of our time judging ourselves against Italian behaviour because it's like it's like a thousand miles away. There's seven countries between us in Italy, and we rarely glance at each other. So things change. I think it was it, there was a friend of mine said he was, he it was very unusually met a series of Italian Americans in Italy. And for them, it's even more different mm-hmm. because the Italian American experience is very much a kind of a, you know, idolising crime movies and certain phrases and all that like which has nothing to do with lads on Vespa riding around Rome. And he said he was quite interested to watch them go. Oh no, this is like, this is totally different. Yeah, uh, so so we 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 enjoy it, and we and it's quite sweet that this thing still exists, that this bond exists between the two countries. But we occasionally worry that we are going to slightly disappoint you because <laughs> we haven't sat around doing exactly the thing that you thought we were doing for the last while. It, is, it has shifted quite a lot. Even I, and I say this as someone who, I left around about 25 years ago, and I can even, and I go over and back all the time to do shows, I can feel the ice flow shifting mm. of... Them having had experiences in the last 25 years in Ireland, different Taoiseach, different, different prime ministers, different political movements, all these things is happened, that I in London am not around day to day for. So I can see that process happening slightly where I have to, I have to go back in and relearn what's happening in Ireland.
1: Let's know? listen to one bit you have about a uh, changing Ireland.
2: The thing about Ireland is, Ireland is a bit of cash. We've changed in our Oh, we've changed. Oh, this is our favourite line about ourselves. Oh, two weeks, you can never go back. You won't recognise the place when you go back. It's changed. Oh, those two weeks, the country's gone so much different. It's, you wouldn't recognise it. You can never go back. We're loving this about ourselves because we finally got a bit of cash in our pockets and we love the notion, oh, we're not the same place we were. We've lost our soul, we've lost our spirit. We're exactly the same ages we always were, right? But with a bit of cash. There's no change. Well, there's one change in Ireland. Baguettes.
1: We're talking to comedian Dara O'Brien. He has a, U- a U.S. tour uh, kicking off at, in New York, Chicago, D.C., and Boston. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. So I, I really am hearing two things, that in one way you feel uh, there have been changes in Ireland, and, and you've experienced those in in your life. You go back and you have to kind of reorient yourself but at the same time, <laughs> it's very much the place where you grew up. So so where do you find the the tension or maybe agreement between the Ireland you knew and the Ireland that is? It's
2: interesting because I think you look then for very universal traits or very fundamental traits, um, I suppose. And I suppose I would narrow down because the Irish, it says, I, <laughs> if I can both self mythologize while giving out about self-mythologising. <laughs> okay. uh, if I'm allowed to have the cake and eat it. Talk about ourselves as a unique way, to, way more than we should. We're almost unique in how we talk about how unique we are. Uh, about national traits that are very common <laughs> around the world. The, uh, oh, we, we laugh more. We know loads of people laugh. We love music. Cavemen love music. There's a lot of that. But there is a thing that we have in Ireland which is a very informal kind of sense of already knowing each other. And it's like, it, which is why it's such a good club. Because there is a tendency to think, oh, well, I'm Irish, you're Irish, so therefore we're instantly, should we know without even saying it, there'll be six leaps from me to you anyway. So therefore, because it's small, uh, and it was, uh, for a long time, ridiculously homogenised. The, uh, but there is an element, for example, that if I'm, my wife is British, if we're away on a holiday, some other part of the world. Let's say in Asia. We're sitting in Asia in a hotel in Asia and we're at breakfast. If somebody with an English accent walks past the table, she won't glance. she'd not even think to look up. But if somebody with an Irish accent walks past, I, like a meerkat, have to just <laughs> check in, have to just acknowledge and they'll acknowledge me and we'll just, know we won't spend the, the week hanging out together or anything, but we'll just go, hello, how are you? How are you? Grand. And then we'll go back to, it's, a strange sense of like, we do feel a, a sort of club membership, a kinship, mm. uh, uh, that. And it's a really, really useful kind of um, birthright because it means it's kind of informally you'll meet people and, and just talk, to start talking. Yeah. It's like the first line of the conversation is already done. And that is a thing that we have. And I think we'll hopefully hold on to
1: so you are a, a man who contains um, multitudes you studied math and theoretical physics in university you you've taken that passion into your media career so you've written a handful of science books for kids and this year you launched a new TV show it's called wonders of the moon and it explores the importance of the moon to life on earth how did this fascination about the science of the world around you begin
2: oh i was i was I think it was, I was at the magical age between eleven and fourteen where you Pay, you, you pick up these things or somebody plants an idea in your head about the shape of the universe and I began to seek after it and now unfortunately my joy at this and it is a, it's a thing I've maintained all my life did get bumped slightly when I went to university and discovered standing in front of a crowd and that running away to the circus sort of took over for a while but it remained this passion I had and actually during the lockdown I then finally purchased some decent telescopes. So we'd done a TV show for years called Stargazing Live, and myself and Michael, Professor Brian Cox. And we'd done this TV show for, for, for 10 years, which, you know, in which we'd covered a British astronaut going up to the, to the space station live. And we'd done a, a um, solar eclipse live and all these things. We became the go-to for these kind of events. And we kept being given brilliant photographs, and it was amazing. And then I, then during lockdown, thought, you know what, it's probably time I bought a telescope myself, and I got quite obsessed with being out in the garden because it was the first time I'd not been touring. And as part of that, then we did think we did the moon, uh, and then we're doing the sun actually, wonders of the sun mm-hmm. this year, including going to you have a really good eclipse by the way, cutting across America on the 8th of April. Um, starts in northern Mexico, goes across Dallas, Fort Worth, I think it goes as far as Chicago, then up to Toronto in Canada, and a few. And like it's a properly great eclipse, Um, in terms of it passes a lot of highly popular areas and will be a free show. Okay. So we're coming over essentially as a bucket list thing. I literally will contrive my career to go and see things that I should tick off.
1: All right, Dara, before we head to the break, give me one of your favorite moon facts.
2: Oh my God, that we're going to go back. It dwarfs everything. We're going to go back in the next two years. That's, that's it. That's Sorry, that's the game the, uh, right there. And we'll build stuff out of the stuff on the moon. There
1: you go. We're heading to a quick break. When we return, Dara shares his experience with Ireland's bureaucratic maze for those seeking their birth families. Back with more in a moment.
0: This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Macmillan Audio. One of the most thought-provoking books about the Middle East, Thomas L. Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem is now available as an unabridged audiobook featuring a new preface read by the author. Find it wherever audiobooks are sold.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon.
3: I have a long-standing relationship with Ireland going back to the first time I went there when I was 14. I come from an Irish-American family. I actually dated a boy from South Dublin for 4 years. He actually introduced me to Dara O'Brien. <laughs> but um, more recently, I actually lived there for almost three years. One of the things I absolutely love, but maybe also hate, <laughs> love I have a love-hate relationship with this phrase, is the Irish phrase, it'll be grand, which gets said a lot. And I feel like it's its an attitude, it's a mentality that people in Ireland have. But I found that really hard as an American with very high anxiety.
2: Okay. what is What does that mean? Grand. It, it'll be grand means it'll be fine. It'll be okay. Should it be grand? It'll be grand. I mean, the uh, grand doesn't mean grand. Uh, <laughs> if there was a grand canyon in Ireland, this is a joke a friend of mine has, his Grand Canyon in Ireland, wouldn't be much of a canyon. It'd be a perfectly fine canyon. <laughs> wouldn't be a very big canyon. The, uh, I had a line once you were, the, about how people presume your know, life should be joy or happiness all the time. But honestly, if you got to the end of your life and you could say, it was grand, you know, then, they, then you've done well. Then you've done. Then you've done fine. Uh, but grand is it's a it is a catch all. It is used and probably as much in all Irish phrases to obscure as much to as, as to illuminate.
1: Well, it also the, hints uh, at a sort of at a sort of pragmatism that that, yeah. uh, that things don't yeah. have to
2: be fantastic. It's just oh like, yeah, it's euphoric and right. joyous and, and wonderful. It'll be grand. It'll be grand. It'll be fine. And sure, look what else would you expect? What are you looking for? <laughs> <It'd be> grand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, uh, and like, obviously, we aspire in many fields, not least comedy, to be, it to be very, very good. Uh, like, I'd like to think, no one will walk out of the show I do going, it's grand. That would be really, really <laughs> painful to me. But the, uh, uh, I'd like to say, that was spectacular. But, um, yeah, in life generally, look, sure, look, if you hit it, will be grand. There's no reason to, you know, there you go. You're ahead. You're ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You're, you know, you've done fine. But, but you've you... done grand. The
1: well, there was a very, um, I I would assume, a very spectacular event in your life. In 2015, you got to meet the late Stephen Hawking. Uh, he was a theoretical physicist and, and a cosmologist who has been a hero of yours since boyhood. And you got to speak with him just as the movie on his life was being premiered. As someone who loves science, loves space, what was, what was that experience like?
2: It, it was incredible because I had a copy of A Brief History of Time, the, the copy I was given, as a Christmas present when it came out, not a first edition, I don't think the, uh, but it was uh, it was in, in 1989, and then I got him to sign it, uh, which the which he would, they would do by his his team would they put a thumbprint of Stephen down, and then they would they would sign it and endorse it, and it's, it's behind me on a shelf right now. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a treasured possession of mine, but uh, so I would had the odd interaction with him, probably in, amidst all the science and all the nerding out. Um, there were a couple of things that stood out First, He's very very funny, very playful, very, you know, we had some, he had some line about in one of the interviews because we'd have to submit the questions in advance and he would spend some time drafting the answers and then essentially perform it because he was late stage uh, of, of his condition. So he would then, I would ask the question again and he would queue up the answer. Um, and we did one of them and one of them was very, I mean, I said, you know, what keeps you alive? And he said, uh, how can I die when there's so much yet to discover? Right, and I, to, and I off the cuff said, Well, she looked, that's great. We'll put that on a t-shirt. That's fantastic. And I said, She will do 50-50. And I waited, and there's obviously silence. And I went, okay, 60-40. And I waited and the silence again. <laughs> and I said, All right, 70-30. And like and we moved on, right? And then literally five minutes later, as we were preparing another shot, from the speaker in his chair, it came. Eighty twenty final offer, <laughs> and so we had to redo the of him saying that. So he was he was he was a lovely man to, to to be with, like whatever. But it was there was a moment, however, that I when I first came to see him, that I was he was in a dressing room getting ready for the premiere of the movie, actually, uh, and. Well, you know, and I came in and talked to him. But I'd met him once or twice before and I was chatting to him and I started burbling. And it was really embarrassing. And the team kind of watched me do this for a while, his team, and then eventually brought over a chair and said, It's fine, he's composing an answer, just wait. And I it was the most mortifying thing, embarrassing thing. And then we took the decision to leave it into the documentary. And it was very embarrassing to watch. But then I met people who worked with motor urine disease recently who said, Thank you for leaving that in, because people get really uncomfortable mm. really quickly and start filling the space mm. with just wittering. And he said, it was good to see that what you do is you've said it. He's heard what you're saying. He's responding, but obviously it's going to be slow. And you just sit there and shut up. Yeah. They said it was really useful for us to have that example of somebody just doing it wrong or just le- or being embarrassed or feeling awkward and then having to get over that. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, and so that was, that was handy, but mortifying, mortifying. <laughs> Well,
1: another really um, important meeting for you was meeting your birth mother. In your new stand-up special, you talk about the search to find her, and you say it was it was an unnecessarily hard search. What happened?
2: Yeah, well, the Irish state essentially, without going into the specifics, because it's 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 a, it's a story I, I tell, and I will reassure people that if I bring you down, I will very much lift you up towards the air, like the end and the relief of it all. And it's, it's being a very funny story, but there's certainly a bit where you'll rightly be sad for this woman and also angry at how it was handled, these things, because it was, it was stuff was obscured. Stuff was just, you know, I mean, I struggled through the system because I, I found doors that other people have passed, that people have beaten into, to find ways through it. But the way I found, like I actually discovered the information myself, it's a long story, but it is ridiculous that, you know, the laws were unhelpful and they were difficult. And people would work within that system to try to hint you to the right, well, if you just look over there, kind of a thing. And which is, by the way, a phenomenally Irish thing to be doing as well. Uh, an Irish solution to an Irish problem is the name of a, of a particular phenomenon we have, whereby, oh, we could change the law, but that would be an effort. So instead, why don't we just, you know, find this trapdoor that we can lead you to that will get you to the right, right thing. So, so finding out any information, finding your birth cert was illegal, finding out any identifying information was illegal, um, and it was basically built to be as obscure as possible. Mm. Um, obscure as possible. To be as difficult to, to, to navigate. I mean, there are nightmare stories of people being sent, that there was a grave they chose and said, no, this is where your mother's now buried. And people would just go to this grave. <laughs> and like luckily didn't bump into other people who'd been sent to that grave. This kind of stuff would, would go on. Because it was felt like once these events had happened they should never be spoken of again. Mm. You know, and now it's opened out enormously. Now, the other, the silent punchline of this is, I said that I was on the Late Late Show in Ireland, the big chat show in Ireland, and saying, look, if I wrote that entire thing again now, it would take one minute. It takes me 35 minutes to tell you the story with the full, all the twists and turns and the, and the detective element of it all. Sure, now it would take a minute. I spit in a cup, I send the cup off to a lab, and then the DNA results come back. Mm. Uh, like, uh, six weeks later. And then you just, you, you text your cousin and you go, hello, I seem to be your cousin, and they'll get in touch with you, you know. And so Ireland built this whole structure, the Catholic Church and all that sort of built the whole structure of, sure, this is a thing that we'd never speak of again. These fallen women would give these, and these children, and they're passed on. And like there's all these kind of nightmare stories about children being sold uh, to America and how it was never fully investigated and all these untraceable, untraceable Uh, Adoptions, Mm. Um, so it was. It it, it, the the country at the moment is undergoing something of a reckoning around this entire topic. I'm on the very, you know, how would you put this? I'm on the less brutal end of it. Mm. The um, because you know, my mother never ended up in a mother and baby home, and never ended up in a Magdalen Laundry. The uh, but those institutions existed, and people involved in those are. Correctly seeking reparations, seeking truth, and all this kind of stuff like that. Mine feels like it edges onto that stuff, but the uh, but ended up being just a you know a, a story of, of of the ridiculousness of the way we try to be humane within a system which has been built to be inhumane.
1: And, and those, um, those centers you mentioned, these were church-run centers for unmarried yes, women yeah, and yeah, girls, yeah. and they were often pressured exactly, to give yeah. up their their babies at birth. I mean, since you've been through that process, you've had the chance to meet some of your biological siblings. You you did find your mother. Did those meetings change your your perspective on yourself in any way?
2: No, no. I mean, I, it's interesting because um, people presume um, a lot of this, for some people this is a search which is very central to them. The um, I was very secure in my family um, and m- not just my parents, uh, but also my own children and all that. So it was very much the thing I thought, and not to be really thinking, as much for the story as anything, as much to know. Um, that I did the search the, uh, and that's just to, because it was ridiculous but also because, and I say this in the show there was a film called Philomena um, mm-hmm. about a mother it was this by Judy Dench um, she played in the movie a woman called Philomena Lee a real woman the, and and she spent her entire life trying to find out what happened to the child she'd given up because all of the adoptions were what we now know as closed adoptions in other words there was no contact between the family the, um, and so we spent her entire life so I basically the main reason for me was I thought there is a woman I know how my life has worked out but there is a woman who has no idea how her child's life has worked out and at the very least I should send a letter and just Thank her, or say it all worked out okay, or you know, I don't know what the, the and so end up being more than that, you know. And we end up meeting all that the uh, all of which uh, you know I mentioned, but the uh, but it ended up being a chance then to just close that loop as much for her as for me. Hmm. The um, to say that this is what happened, you disaventured her place, but a lot of them you just didn't think of it again. That was that was the ethos at the time the, you you gave the child over and then you carried on with your life, and that's what they did.
1: Yeah, I, I want to just. Pick your brain a little bit about the craft of, of comedy yeah. and whether you have certain rules you follow or or ideas, like I've heard comedians talk about, you know, you never punch down as, as a rule they follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you have a, a certain way you approach your craft?
2: Well, certainly in terms of, I mean, even that uh, punching down uh, speaks of a debate about who you can and can't. Uh, I'm a storyteller, so I kind of sidestep that. I'm the one being punched. Generally, when I am on stage, the uh, I'm I'm putting myself. I mean, because I'm well, independent of any white or a uh, straight or male or any sort of things. I'm a big guy who walks, stands confidently on the stage, and I'm clearly in a position to be to be brought down. Mm. So it ends up being like I, I speak with a certain amount of confidence and authority and it being funny. But then the so it's funnier that I'm the one who ends up being the Patsy in the stories. The uh so I have that. But it's a uh, It's kind of what I so I'm not looking for targets per se, Mm -hmm. and I'm going, This is I mean, that is a perfectly valid thing to be doing in comedy and to be talking about different things and topics, whatever. Whereas I'm looking for what's what what misadventure have I undergone? Well, that
1: gets me into this. It
2: does mean that. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it does mean you step outside slightly from this debate, which goes on about oh you can say nothing these days, which I find very very wearying uh, as a phrase because you can you can then be carry on saying things. There's always there's always another lamppost to walk into or or a custard pie to take in the face in some shape or form. There's always something else you can say, another situation you can place yourself in. So yeah, there's always things to say.
1: Well, Alex in Oklahoma wants to know: Are hecklers in Ireland different from hecklers in other parts of the world you worked in?
2: Um no I mean the room I work in in Dublin is tends to be very participatory um which could be a veiled comment but the uh, I do a lot of audience chat I I quite enjoy the interaction and I also find that when you go to theaters and it's just your name people don't go online Book seats in advance, um, and you know, arrange your baby sort of drive into town, have a bit of dinner first, like whatever, and then the minute you walk out, shout, get off, you're, you're rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's so so. End of your, if it, you end up having to kind of shake them out of it and, and just go to people in the front row, but there is a kind of a there's a healthy chat. Uh, kind of a thing with the, with the audience. The audience are in on the joke a lot of the time. I, I'll, I'll illustrate with one example. We had a man in the audience, when the very first first gigs out, and I said, well, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a property manager. And I said, oh, well, how many properties do you manage? And he said, three, and then instantly realised that both I and the audience had chosen to believe in that instant that he meant three flats rather than three buildings that he looked after. He said, three, and they all started laughing because they and I both went and I was going oh you must be run off your feet with the three flats you look after and this became a huge running joke that the audience were instantly in on that they went yep this guy has given us a second of a weakness (laughs) so he is the guy who his entire job was looking after three flats with like a couple in each flat like whatever and him coming into his wife going oh you don't know how tough it is to look after the three flats that phone he says that phone never stops ringing with the three flats the uh, and at the end of the show then and I do a wrap-up of all the people I've spoken to, and I found myself going, oh, we've learnt a lot about pressurised jobs over the last two years, nurses, doctors, but nobody knows the real <laughs> pressure of having... To, and the, all, for all of this, once I've said the first... After I've said the first... The first time people know it was general doggerel, post-COVID doggerel, but then you go, but nobody knows the real pressure. Then the audience are in on it, and they're already ahead of the joke, and you go, oh, I have a man who looks after three, three flats. flats. And so they're almost cheering you over the line for the joke and fair due to this guy he stood up and held up three fingers and turned to the crowd and <laughs> took the applause so the Irish audience tends to be very interactive and, and to be with you on the joke which is a joy to play with
1: That's Dara O'Brien. He's an Irish comedian and former host of the BBC's Mock the Week. He's set to take off on the U.S. leg of his stand-up tour in New York, Chicago, D.C., and Boston. The tour is called So Where Were We? and it begins next month. Dara, thanks so
2: much for joining us. An absolute pleasure, and I cannot wait to try out this nonsense in front of an American audience. It's going to be great.
1: (laughs) And I just want to mention uh, that in May it was announced that the show Mock the Week will be remade in America, produced by Trevor Noah formerly of Comedy Central's The Daily Show, so we will keep an eye out for that. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.